uh, open up the, your Bibles if you have them. If not, you can just read along there on the uh, PowerPoint presentation. Okay, Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Also, Micah 5, 2. Speaking of Jesus, predicting his birthplace. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, even though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Genesis chapter 1, verse uh, verses 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make God in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And finally, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things, and for your pleasure or your will, they were and are created. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we continue to look at the subject of uh, uh, you, your eternalness, Lord, help us to keep in mind that we are people of eternity too. And Lord, you've created us. We have a beginning. But, Lord, we are going to exist eternally. So help us, Lord, to choose for the right, Lord, to live for your praise and honor and glory, Lord God. And thereby, Lord, uh, uh, enjoy an eternity with you, Lord, as opposed to an eternity apart from you. So, Lord, I pray that you would uh, take this message that you have shared with me and uh, help me to... Uh, deliver it, Lord, with uh, your strength and your power and your conviction, Lord God. And may it touch all of our hearts, Lord, starting with the pastor and passing down to every member of uh, the congregation, everyone who is seated here today. And uh, I thank you for this, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so recently we've been looking at the subject of praise as a weapon. And uh, to defeat the enemies in our lives. Everybody know that we have enemies? What are enemies? The world and the world's way of thinking. The flesh, our own carnal nature, which seeks to drag us down into sin. And the devil, which, uh, op who operates behind the scenes and tries to use these other two enemies against uh, us. So the theme verse that we are using for this subject of praise as a weapon is Psalm 149, verse 6. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. And I've showed you that there are two kinds of praise. There's what, what we call thanksgiving, and we celebrated uh, that this past week. By the way, we had a great concert uh, last week, wasn't it? Yeah, it was great. That's why the microphones were up here in front and kind of in the way. And uh, Dolly, uh, you know, got up and moved them away so you could 
see the screen there and uh, uh, sing along with the uh, praise and worship that we had. Uh, Thanksgiving, and I covered that in depth a, a number of weeks ago, but recently we've been looking at adoration. You know, Thanksgiving is where you praise and thank God for what He is doing and has done and will do in our lives. But adoration is where you thank God, you praise God for who He is, who and what He is. And to do this, I've been going through what are called the attributes of God. And these include, but are not restricted to, love. God is love. First John tells us a lot about that. Uh, holiness, God is a holy God. And justice, God is a just God. Faithfulness, God is a faithful God. His veracity or truthfulness, God is always true. He always tells us what the truth is, as opposed to Satan who uh, tells us lies. His, and, uh, his eternity, and what I call the omni-attributes, uh, omni meaning all, his omnipresent, God is everywhere present, he is omnipotent, God is all-powerful, and omniscience, God knows all. And we're going to look at these more in later messages. So far we've looked at some of those attributes. We've looked at God is love. God is holy. God is just. God is faithful. God is true. God is omnipotent. And recently God is eternal. Okay? Now the practical aspect to these is that's what the, we are to become. God wants us to become like Him. God wants us to be people of love. God wants us to be a holy people. God wants us to be just and fair in our dealings with everybody else. God is faithful. God wants us to be faithful. God is truthful. So He wants us to be truthful people. And God is omnipotent. God is omnipotent. That means he can do all things in your life. And God is eternal. And as we're, we saw last time and are going to see again today, is we are beings of e eternity also. That's the way that God created us because he created us in his image. So last time and today... We talked about that last attribute, God is eternal. Now when we say that God is eternal, it means that he has had no beginning and he will not have an ending. We see this in Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Last time we saw that that uh, last phrase, we unpacked that last phrase in uh, uh, Psalm 90 verse 2. We saw that the two everlasting means that God will never have an ending. Everybody see that? Two everlasting. Everybody believes that. Everybody believes that God will never have an ending. He will continue to exist into eternity future. 
Now the converse, that is the first part of that phrase, is also, must also be true. That the from everlasting me is the other uh, end of the spectrum of all eternity. That God has existed from eternity past. There was and is and always has been a God. <clears throat> That's what we were singing there just a, a little while ago, who was and who is and who is to come. That comes right out of the book of Revelation. Now, because of this, that God is eternal, time really has no relevance to God. For Him, everything exists in the moment. He is in the eternal now. He sees all eternity from the same perspective. Everything exists to him as an eternal present. While we see the parade of events going past us one at a time, uh, he views all time as a whole. Much as, you know, if a person is uh, looking at a parade from a helicopter. You know, we see it from ground level, one thing passing in front of us. But he sees it like somebody watching the same parade in a helicopter. He sees the beginning, he sees the, he, uh, the ending. So everything for him is the eternal now. To put it more plainly, God sees time from a different perspective than we do. And that's how he can make predictions about the future. And then he passes them on to his prophets in the Old and New Testaments. Some of the uh, predictions that you read about in the Bible are quite explicit, such as the Messiah dying for the sins of the world. Isaiah chapter 53, we read right in the the heart of that uh, uh, chapter, He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Perfect description of mankind. And the Lord has laid upon him the suffering servant, the Messiah that is being spoken of in Isaiah 53, 700 years before it became a fact. Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Also the crucifixion of the Lord. You read the 22nd Psalm. It's a graphic depiction of crucifixion. It talked about piercing his hands and his feet. And what's amazing is when David wrote that a thousand years before the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross for our sins, crucifixion hadn't even been invented as a method of punishment. It wasn't until 500 years later with the Persians that they started it out, and then the Romans, of course, perfected it. And you also read about, uh, uh, you know, it's not just in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament too. You have the story of Agabus, a prophet of the Lord, in Acts chapter 11, verse 28, where he predicted a famine was going to occur uh, throughout the Roman world. And he also, when uh, later on in the book of Acts, I believe it's uh, uh, chapter 21, it's either 21 or 22, 
uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul comes by and he takes Paul's belt and he bound his hands and his feet and says, Thus says the Lord, so also shall the, the, uh, the, the owner of this belt be bound. And that came to pass exactly as he said, as uh, Paul was arrested when he got to Jerusalem. So some of these predictions in the Old Testament and the New Testament were quite explicit. And this is called God's foreknowledge. Since God is in the everywhere present from his perspective, he has this foreknowledge. And he knows all of us from eternity past. This is part of his omniscience. Now we haven't talked about his omniscience yet, but it's part of his omniscience. Which means that God knows all things. And we'll be talking about more about that in a separate message. A good example of this foreknowledge is uh, <clears throat> what he told uh, Jeremiah uh, before his ministry began. You know, he said to the Lord, you know, if God was calling, he, he could feel that call upon his life. And he said, God, I'm just a, a youth, you know, I can't speak for you. And this is what uh, God told him in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I set you apart. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So even though Jeremiah was a great prophet, you know, the application for our lives, even though Jeremiah was a great prophet, do you think he was any better than you or I? I don't think so. He was a man just like you or I, or, or a woman, you know, just like you or I are. Okay? So God knew you before he ever formed you in your mother's womb. And he had a, has a call for all of our lives too. Now Jeremiah would later make many more prophecies, uh, not only about the future. You know, he was the one that predicted uh, you know, it, it was during his lifetime that Israel, or, uh, the nation of Judah, was exiled into Babylon. And he made that prediction that within 70 years, Israel would be rest uh, restored to the land. And that, uh, exa that's exactly what had happened. You know, for you read the book of Daniel, Daniel starts getting antsy. He says, you know, God, that 70 years is almost up. Uh, are you going to bring this to pass or not? And then God gave him revelations. Yes, that indeed it was going to pass, just as Jeremiah had predicted. But Jeremiah didn't just make these uh, uh, predictions of the future. He would also got up there and urge the people to turn from their worthless idols back to him, the living God. And that's really what prophecy is all about. It's not just foretelling, it's also foretelling. Speaking God's language is, you know, the, in the uh, <clears throat> uh, First Corinthians chapter 14 tells us that prophecy is for the edification, exhortation, and comfort of the people. And if you read through the Old Testament prophets, you'll find that 90% of what they did was that very thing, urging the people to turn back to the living God, to live righteously, and to exhort them and to comfort them. It wasn't just foretelling, it was also forth. 
telling. Last time we also saw also that Jesus too is eternal. Just like God the Father in Psalm 90 verse 2, Jesus himself is described as having, uh, never having had a beginning. Micah 5.2, which predicted the birthplace of Jesus the Messiah. But you, again this is 700 years before it became a fact, uh, a, a fact, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Wording right there, from everlasting, is identical to Psalm 90 verse 2. So the scripture not only predicts the birthplace of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, 700 years before it became a, a reality, it further states that he pre-existed in eternity past, just like uh, God, uh, God the Father. So he is God the Son. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the, uh, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So the phrase, in the beginning, means from eternity past. And it stands to reason also that if we have an eternal Father, then we also must have an eternal Son. Now we were created also to exist eternally. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make God in our image according to our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It seems obvious that of the many aspects of this being created in his image means that we also now have this eternal eternity of being. We had a beginning, you know, when we were born, but we will never have an ending. So, we are eternal in, the, uh, not, not necessarily in the sense of God, who also existed from eternity past, but we will exist into the eternal future. And it is our choice where we are going to spend that eternity. So the Bible makes it plain that even though we, of course, had a beginning, there will never come a time when any of us, that is, all humanity, will cease to exist. We will either live forever in the presence of God or be eternally separated. And the choice is up to us. Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather Fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, I was pointing that out to you that uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny the existence of hell, you know, point to this scripture and they say, there you have it. You know, he's going to destroy the body in hell. You know, it's, you know, going to cease to exist. Well, the problem is, the word there, destroy, does not mean annihilate or vaporize. Sort of like, you know, the, uh, I pointed out, you know, the Star Treks, you know, they point their face or something, you know, and all of a sudden it kind of vaporizes and, you know, ceases to be there. You know, that's not true of your eternal soul. 
Your eternal soul will never be destroyed. And the word destroyed there in Matthew 10, 28 doesn't mean just annihilate. Rather, it means to be to ruin or to be rendered unfit for the purpose for which it was made, for the purpose with which it was created. Illustration of that is in the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 9, verse 17. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is, is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, the illustration there is, you know, the new wineskins are supple, and they can accommodate the expansion as the wine ferments. But if you put them into old wineskins, the old wineskins are not supple. So that's when they start to, you know, expand, it bursts the wineskins, the old wineskins, and then, of course, it's ruined. It's rendered unfit for what its purpose was, which was to, of course, hold wine. Now, the Greek word for ruined there is the same word for destroy in Matthew 10, 28. So destroy in that purpose does not mean it's annihilated. The wine skin is still there, but it's no longer fit to do what it was created for, which was to hold uh, wine. <clears throat> so those wineskins were made for one purpose, which was to hold wine, but if they've been burst open, they still exist, they're not annihilated, but they can no longer be used for the purpose for which they were created. Now God has created us for a specific purpose. And he has created in us a vacuum that can only be filled by him. It says there in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you have created all things, and for your pleasure or your will, they are and were created. So we were created to bring pleasure to God. Yes. Now, so many people say, well, I don't like that. I don't want to live for God's pleasure. I want to live for my own pleasure. You know, that's what the essence of what sin is all about, is wanting to live for your own pleasure rather than the pleasure of God. And He receives pleasure when we fellowship with Him, when we praise Him and give Him honor and uh, glory. Solomon put it this way. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, he wrote, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. You know, all of us instinctively, innately know that we are eternal beings. Amen? That's why people are always, you know, thinking about the afterlife. At least they should be anyway. Except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. St. Augustine wrote uh, this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless 
until they rest in you. So we cannot really truly be satisfied in this life until we begin to really live for his pleasure. There's always going to be that gnawing, that emptiness inside until you begin to live for God rather than yourself. Pascal, Blaise Pascal, who was a French mathematician back in the 17th century, later on he became a theologian of sorts, he put it this way, there is a God-shaped vacuum or hole in the heart of everyone which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. So everybody's got that vacuum. You know, if you feel empty inside, I would urge you to make a commitment to the Lord and begin to live for His pleasure rather than your own pleasure. But this explains the existence of all these man-made religions. Because man knows that something is wrong, something is missing. You know, we're sinful people. And we need to deal with that sin and receive the Lord into our lives, and then we will find meaning and fulfillment in life. We are made to have a relationship with God. And we have our time here on earth to decide if we want this relationship. And therefore, the sooner you make that commitment to the Lord, the uh, uh, desire to fellowship with Him, and have that relationship with Him, the better. Because the more time that you have on earth, then the more time you can cultivate that relationship with Him. So it's important that we get to know Him as soon as possible before we leave this earth. So that's the question for all eternity. Do we really want this relationship with Him? And only you can answer that question. But your answer determines your eternal destiny. To have that relationship with Him, we first have to deal with the problem of sin in our lives. The sin separates you from uh, God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul wrote in Romans uh, 3.23. And... Uh, somebody... Oh, okay. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, uh, uh, Paul wrote in uh, 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 Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And then he went on to say in 6.23, he said, uh, the wages of this sin is death. Death there doesn't mean physical death. We're all going to die physically. It means separation. Remember that, you know, life in the Bible means union. The union, the, the physical life that you have, your soul, your etern your uh, uh, you know your soul and spirit, the immaterial part of you is in union right now with your body. But at the point of death, that eternal part of you separates from you. And likewise, spiritual life and spiritual death. We're all born spiritually dead. Paul wrote, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But the thing is, you can have eternal life, which means union. Your, your uh, 
soul and your spirit can enjoy this eternal union. And this eternal union with God begins the moment that you are saved. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me will never, never die. Amen. Amen? I'm living eternal life now because I've received the Lord Jesus Christ into my life. And I have eternal life now. It doesn't start the day that I die. It starts, it's, it's going on right now. I have that spiritual life. So that sin separates us from God and we don't have eternal life until we deal with that sin. And the only way that you can deal with sin in your life is to accept what Jesus did for you on the cross. You'll never be good enough. You know, so many people think that they can deal with sin on their own terms. They cannot. You will never be good enough because God's uh, standard is perfection. Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3 that he does not have a, a righteousness of his own, which is by obeying the law, a set of rules and regulations, but his righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which he says, I appropriate by faith. So you either stand to uh, before God on the day of judgment, dressed in the filthy rags of your own uh, righteousness, that's what uh, Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, verse 6. He said, we are like an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Nothing in your self-righteousness will give you a right standing with God. Instead, you have to put the robe of righteousness that Jesus gives to you, which is his own righteousness, and you appropriate that by faith. Now... If we come to the end of our lives here on earth and we have not established that relationship, he has no choice but to let us go our own way and suffer that eternity away from him in a realm known as hell. Now, I don't like talking about this subject. You know, those of you that are regular attenders can testify that I very seldom talk about hell. And I, and I don't like talking about it. You know, I was uh, in preparation for this uh, message yesterday. I was reading up on this, and I, I was reading that no less than a uh, well-known theologian by the name of R.C. Sproul uh, was talking about it. He said, what's the most difficult doctrine that you have to deal with? And without hesitation, he said, it's the doctrine of hell. So he, now I don't agree with a lot of stuff that R.C. Sproul uh, says, but it, it, it said something to me that, you know, he still struggles with the, the whole concept too. But I am the pastor here. You've made me your pastor. And Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter uh, 20, verse 27, I have not hesitated to give you the whole counsel of God. This is part of the whole counsel of God. And it makes me uncomfortable. I had my paternal grandmother I was particularly close to. But I knew that she didn't believe like I did. And, you know, 
One time the devil came to me and said, you know, your grandmother's not, she's such a good person. And if you knew her, she, she was a lovely person. But lovely person, being a lovely person doesn't cut it with God. You know, you've got to receive what Jesus did for you on that cross. And, you know, that became a source of stumbling with me. And then I got serious about the Lord. And uh, then I began to pray for my grandmother. And I prayed with all my soul for two and a half years that she would get saved before she departed this life. And uh, she passed away about two and a half years after I got serious with the Lord. And I don't really have a, a real peace about her. I, I not only, you know, uh, prayed for her. She was living up in a retirement home in Northern California. I'm from the San Diego area. And I sent her this tape and she played it and she absolutely loved it. And in there, I, you know, led her through the sinner's prayer of repentance. And I don't know if she ever really prayed that uh, prayer from the heart. I, I hope she did, but I have no real peace about it. But it breaks my heart and all of us have had relatives that have passed on from this life and you know we have to just leave them in the hands of God so this is not a an easy subject for me me to talk about but does hell really exist and I would say you bet it does be we know this because none other than Jesus Christ told us about it in fact, he preached more about it than any other uh, person that we read about in the Bible. In Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through uh, 49, he gives some particularly vivid descriptions of it. And he makes allusions to uh, Isaiah 66, verse 24. Isaiah 66, verse 24 says, And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For the worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Now the word that Jesus used to describe hell in verse 9 was the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna was a, during his time was a valley that the people of Jerusalem tossed their garbage and they would burn the garbage there and so it was a place of perpetual burning and the fresh garbage that they uh, just tossed in there before it got burned of course you know the uh, flies would come and uh, lay their eggs so it was covered with maggots too now, what are these worms that are being spoken about in uh, verse 9? You know, I, I never knew what that was, and so I did a little bit of research yesterday. And I think that the worms that are being alluded to, as people are there in eternally separated from God, is they have that gnawing feeling inside, you know, of regret that they were given opportunities to receive the gospel but they turned it away they they uh, didn't receive it now what else does hell entail 
Speaking of the children of Israel, Jesus said, And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Here he's talking about the Gentiles. When he uh, said that, the Gentiles had not yet received the gospel, but he's predicting that the Gentiles, you know, I, I don't think that there's anybody Jewish here, but the Jewish people would reject the gospel. Because the Old Testament gave two separate strains of messianic thought. One was that of the suffering servant that spoken there, as I mentioned in Isaiah chapter 53, and the other of a conquering king. And the people of Israel said, oh, we want that conquering king. But we don't want this suffering servant. We don't want, that is, you know, we want to just obey our law and then thereby we'll be saved. But they're not saved by obedience to the law. They're saved by looking to the Messiah to be their uh, sin sacrifice. Verse 12 of uh, Matthew chapter uh, 8. But the sons of the kingdom, he's speaking of the people, children of Israel there, will be cast into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, some people say, I don't want to go to heaven. I want to go to hell because that's where all my friends will be. You ever heard, you ever heard that before? Mm -hmm. You know, people say that, yeah. you know. But the Matthew 8 passage that I just read gives a completely different picture. It indicates that hell will be a place of outer darkness. You know, when you go to some of these caves, like Carlsbad Cavern or uh, <clears throat> Mammoth Cave, at one point, you know, they take you on a tour, and then they'll say, okay, everybody, douse the lights. And they cut out the lights, and it's just pitch black. That's what, to me, that's what uh, Matthew chapter 8, verse 12 is talking about. It's going to be pitch black. So, you won't even be able to see your friends there, let alone party with them. You know, it's uh, what, uh, what the, these people seem to think. You know, it's going, you know, that's one, the one thing you know about darkness is you can't see in it. So all these people that are bound for the, that destiny are going to feel is utter helplessness and loneliness. Whatever hell is, God is not going to be there. You know, you, t you had a lifetime to turn to him and you chose to reject him. And that's reason enough to avoid it. Because everything good in this life comes from him. James chapter 1 verse 17 tells us every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of heavenly lights with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of changing. Now, some final thoughts. I'm almost done here. I want to return back to this matter of God's foreknowledge. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
When you receive the Lord, that's the time that you need to draw close to Him so you can be conformed to the image of Christ. Become more a person of love, a holy person, a faithful person, and so on and so forth. That's the way Jesus was in this life. <clears throat> that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. Verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. That's our future state. We're going to be glorified and receive a body just like the Lord Jesus Christ did when he was resurrected from the dead. So brothers and sisters, predestination is a biblical doctrine. Now, I've talked to uh, some people that uh, reject this notion of predestination, but it's mentioned right there in Romans chapter 8, and as we're going to see also in Ephesians chapter 1. Predestination is a biblical doctrine. Certain Christian groups, so-called Christian groups, I know that I've locked horns with people from the Church of Christ who deny uh, predestination, but it is plainly taught in the Bible. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, Just as He chose us from the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, God wants everybody to be saved. Bible makes that very plain. You know, it's not God's will for any to perish, to suffer that eternity away from God. But man goes there by his own choice. And the simple fact is this, brothers and sisters, only a few, that it, when I say a few, I mean comparatively, will be saved. What is it, one in ten? One in a hundred? Only God knows exactly what it means. Many more are going to be eternally lost. And Jesus himself taught that too. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. The narrow gate is the cross of Jesus Christ. You have to receive what he did on the cross for your sins. For wide is the great and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Destruction, again, it's that word that I pointed out to you, means ruin. You know, it's the exact same word. I, I know because I done looked it up the, this morning just to make sure I knew what I was talking about. Destruction that leads to ruin. And there are many who go by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to eternal life. And there are few who find it. You know, the vast majority of people are going to think that all they need to do is just be a good person. But it takes more than being a good person. It takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So this matter of choosing and predestinating God is rooted in its foreknowledge. That's the key to understanding what predestination means. It's rooted in his foreknowledge. He knew who 
was going to be saved from eternity past because he knows in every single person and he knows your heart. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So to understand predestination, you have to think in terms of God's foreknowledge. You say, but uh, Pastor Cliff, doesn't the Bible say, whosoever will may come? Yes, it does. You know, that's our from salvation from our perspective. Whosoever will may come. How do you know you're one of the chosen few? You receive Jesus Christ. And if you haven't made that decision, this is the time to make it right now. You know, I once heard it uh, described this way. You have the gates of heaven. And people are filing there into heaven one by one. The sign above the gate there is whosoever will may come. That's our responsibility. We choose to have that relationship with God. And he rewards us with that eternal life. Or rather, I should say, he gives us that eternal life. So you pass through those gates of heaven, and you look back, and you look upon the gate behind you, and you know what it says? It says, chosen from the foundation of the world. So that's God's perspective. Our perspective is whosoever will may come. So if you want eternal life, you want that relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you haven't made that decision, you know, I would urge you to make it now. Okay. Closing song. If you would uh, cue that up, uh, Lane or uh, Susie. That verse that I quoted before, Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Your pleasure they are created. That's what this song is about. That, that one right there. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, double click on it.
So that's what the question for all eternity is. Are you living for God's pleasure or are you just living life for your own pleasure? Praise the Lord. Uh, Let's bow our heads. Father, we come before you. And Lord, uh, we do affirm, Lord, that we do want that relationship with you. And we want to bring you pleasure in this life. And we know that there's only one way that we can bring you pleasure. And that's to establish that relationship with you and to walk with you each and every day. And Lord, uh, if there's anybody here that has not received you, I'm just going to pray this sinner's prayer of repentance. And if you haven't received it, then uh, just repeat after me. Lord Jesus, I know that I am a sinner. I have broken your commandments and fallen short of your standards. Right now, I turn from that sin and ask you to come into my life. Be my Lord, Savior, friend, and God. I put my faith in Jesus Christ. In Him alone to save me from my sins. Thank you for loving me and calling me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer, come and see me for the first time. Come and see me after uh, church. And I'll, in fact, I, I want to make sure that everybody's got, you know, one of these uh, New Believers Bibles. We'll get, get you a copy. Hallelujah. Okay. So uh, let's go to the. Uh,